A podcast of the cinema, hosted by you, Dave White. I'm Alonzo yeah. Duraldi. We're film critics, uh, and this is our show. And today we have a guest. We do! A guest who... How many times have you been here? In this At house? At least twice. No, you've been in the house <laughs> several times. But I mean, like... How many times have you... You've been on this show, like, at least twice yes. or twice. What, what, maybe one was Zoomy. Mm. Oh no, I did a different thing with you on Zoom. Yeah. But anyway, no, I've definitely, I've definitely sat in this seat with You're this mic in front of me. Getting close to the SNL level of <laughs> five timers. Yeah. Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin. <laughs> it's Guinevere Turner, y'all. You. Woo. Uh, you know, uh, actress, screenwriter, director, and now memoirist. Yeah. Her new book, uh, "When the World Didn't End," is out this week in stores wherever you buy your books. And uh, already it, this week, or like in the coming week? No, it came out it just this, this week this past okay. Tuesday. on Got Tuesday it. on my birthday. Oh, we're, nice! We're <laughs> special, and we've had a copy for a few weeks. Now, yes, so, yeah. uh, it is. It is compelling and horrifying and moving, and you know, it's it's a lot. I, I love your book. I wanted to say that off the top. Thank you. Uh, it's funny. I just the last time you were here was when Charlie Says came out, which you wrote. And we talked a little about how your background in occult, you know, informed that film. But at the end of the at the end of the interview, you know, you had you had sort of talked about, uh, you know, pots you had on the stove, like the, the project you had lined up. You said, "Check back with me in four years, and we'll see how it's going." And it is four years later. OMG, it but, is totally four years but, later. But those four years included 2020 and 2021, so no one's plans or what they thought they were going to be in 2019. Um, I, yeah, let's so let's start. You know, let's talk about the book. Of course, um, this grew out of the the essay that you wrote for the New Yorker. What prompted that assignment? Like, who came to you, or did you go to them? Uh, how did that essay in the first place happen? I'm I'm I want I, I feel like I'm I'm among friends, so I want to just admit that I need my origin story of this book to be shorter. So I'm just going to try a couple of things with you because it, it, that is the right question and, and there is an answer to it. But I always feel like I'm being a windbag when I say this. I'm, by always, I mean I've done three interviews. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm, I haven't nailed it yet. So I'm workshopping with you because I'm among friends. Um, that, that piece in The New Yorker was, was a result of the fact that, I, that Charlie Says was coming out. Mm. That, that was not my first rodeo, meaning not my first movie. And I had spent every movie in, in, on press junkets not talking about my childhood. And sure. if, if a, you know enterprising journalist asked me about it, I would have developed Olympic-level skills of pivoting. Mm. And then I realized, oh, damn. I can't do that this time or that would that would be weird to do that this time. It's actually relevant because it wasn't relevant to any of my other work. And so I was sort of bemoaning, apologizing to the director of Charlie Says Mary Heron, um, who is also my good friend. Uh, I'm like, I'm sorry, but 
I'm going to talk about my childhood and it's going to hog up all of our interviews because I know how it goes when I talk about my childhood. Everyone's like, and what? Ooh, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was, and I was like, and I, I don't really don't want to do that. I want to talk about the movie and our journey. And she said, why don't you write and write something about it, try to get it published and get ahead of it. And through a series of events that, that ended up not only being in the New Yorker, which was amazing, uh, but it got, it, they published it two weeks before, we were, two days rather, before we were doing our press junket. Oh, perfect. And the New Yorker is not out here trying to help you promote anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was, I was like, thank you. Don't ask, don't tell. Like, I'm not asking. Like, I was just amazed. And so every journalist said, we read your piece in the New Yorker. Very well done. How did that affect you writing this movie? And I was like, Wow, I need to keep that Mary Heron around. (laughs) She has good advice. She's the one who was like, have you read American Psycho? Me, what's that? Um, Do you know who Betty Page is? No, who's that? So, you know, (laughs) she's basically saving me from living under the rock that apparently I live under. So, uh, So with that, with the publication of that piece, which was like, I was amazed at how well received it was. Um, I feel like when you're in the New Yorker already, people just think you're a good writer because it's Ooh. in that font and format. <laughs> I, I believed it. I was like, I look fancy. One oblique cartoon. In the... <laughs> yeah. And then me just being erudite and pithy. Um, and so I, so from that, I just got a lot of interest from agents and then um, got my lovely agent, Bill Clegg. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> my lovely agent, Bill Clegg, who is also a writer. And who, uh, if you know the movie Keep the Lights On, he's the lit agent that has a drug problem and then gets out of it, Um, which he's written a book about. Uh, And I just immediately adored him. And with his strong uh, guidance, which is like, no, honey, you can't just give your book proposal can't just be that piece. You need to write (laughs) two chapters. You need to show them that you can write a book. Um, I did that. And then, you know, by that fall, I had a book deal. Yes, and I was very, why didn't I write the book sooner, is one question. And uh, uh, I don't, I didn't, I can't act like I was, this was all very super conscious and calculated. Sure. But I do, and one of the many editors I met with when, you know, on the rounds of trying to figure out where this book was going to live, um, said she's, you know, she's a woman like in her 70s, a, a grand dame. Um, she said, you know, you're really smart to have, t- taken this much time to write the book because if you didn't have another career already that's impressive and different it might define you Mm, yeah no I can see that and I was like did I somewhere in my bones know that or was (laughs) I just too chicken to write it (laughs) (laughs) well you say toward the end of the book that you've never believed in therapy uh you know per se and and I'm wondering if the process of writing this counted as therapy or was it you know re-traumatic like like do you, do you feel like you came out of this having you know gotten it out of your system in a healthy way or was it like uh, reliving you know all the uh, you know various kinds of nightmares along the way I feel like the question underneath that question is what is healthy um it was I, I learned a lot I guess mm-hmm. I was I definitely had points where I thought why am I doing this to myself? And then conversely, the rest of the world who reads it. And this is really, it's a really hard story. It's really hard to write. Um, it's, I don't know about if, whether it was therapeutic. I feel like a little piece of me relaxed. Sure. Like I was holding on to the story and, you know, as years and decades went by, I was like, I, I have to write this and I'm not going to remember it anymore in 10 years. Um, 
and I always had this feeling that's kind of hard to fully articulate that the story was in my way that I was only ever going to get so far as a writer without this story being out of me instead of it was almost like you know making a passageway a creative passageway more narrow it was just taking up space um so yeah it was I think that the the journey of this book is just beginning because so many of the people I'm writing about my generation of the girls that I grew up with are still all of them almost are still alive and their response matters so much to me mm. and it will be wide, widely varied depending on their relationship to the Lyman family now so that's the part that's my process yeah it was hard but I you wouldn't have wouldn't have come this far if I wasn't ready to do it but because there are even a couple of times in the book where you reveal something after keeping it secret and you talk about the feeling of an unburdening uh, you know of that and so you know it, for, for people who are of the you're only as sick as your secrets school it feels like you are now you know healthy right. <laughs> I, I guess I'm healthier yeah. I mean you know there's also a part of me that doesn't want people now to look at me and be like wow like you're just a real oh, trauma survivor <laughs> yeah and I'm like I don't that's not at all I don't I didn't need that kind of attention right I mean I always need attention who am I kidding but <laughs> but but I did I don't I wanted I think then that's another reason why I wanted to why I waited so long because I was sort of worried that it would I, I would become an object of I don't know like survivor heroism or whatever and, I, and I'm just not that into that as an identity um and also I you know when people use the term cult survivor I'm like can I really call myself a cult survivor if I beg to stay. That's, that, is, that is one of the fascinating undercurrents of this whole thing, that, that you were separated by them, not by your choosing, and you spend much of the book trying to get back in and into the good graces of the people, you know, sort of running the joint. And it's not until, like, the very end that you realize, oh, no, I need to not be here, you know. And, and so, yeah, I, I, in what state does the Lyman family currently exist, if it does at all? It does exist. Um, Jesse, who, for anyone who reads the book, you'll see is, is pretty much the leader yeah. for my whole experience there. Um, and the sort of matriarch, more than matriarch, the queen. Sure. Uh, yeah. She just passed away in February. Oh, wow. So what state they're in is probably a lot of flux at the moment. Um, in her obituary, they said only 24 people are still a part of the family. Mm. That is a weird number, a misleading number, because so many of my generation are kind of half in, half out, because they're, they have kids and they want their kids to have relationships with their grandparents. But the places that I talk about, all of them and more, still exist, the, wow. the compounds. So the farm and Martha's Vineyard yes. in New York and Atlanta. Yeah, and, and right up the road here in L.A. No kidding. So, uh, so somebody's living there. Mm. And, and a lot of, I, I'm semi-in touch with a lot of the women I grew up with, um, and some of them are come and go with with caution or rather i don't know the way you would deal with discretion maybe. discretion like a volatile parent where you right. you want the relationship but you you tread lightly so it's not a thing where you left and you no longer exist to them you still exist to them absolutely and that okay. i think that was one of the hurdles that i had to get over to write the the piece in The New Yorker and subsequently the book is that I was always in their good graces even though I wasn't there. 
because right. they made me leave. And so part of my 50-something-year-old self, or however old I was when I started, 49, didn't want to be in trouble. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, what is that? And and in to be in trouble would be to speak about them publicly. And I'm like, wow, did that seed get planted? Because because no one else that I grew up with has ever written about it or spoken about it publicly. Mm. And I'm like, I, do I want to be the first one? Or is it yeah, what? you're you're on the Lyman family Wikipedia page. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I, so that that's that's a bit daunting, um, but. I don't, but but the thing about even writing the New Yorker pieces, a lot of them got in touch with me privately, and said, "Way to go, you're so brave, mm-hmm. loved your piece. Mm. Things got worse after you left. All these things." That, but they were like sneaky little Facebook messages, and right. you know, and oh. and a couple of them said, "Don't tell anyone I got in touch with you." Right. So it's all very fragile. But I I, I was sort of amazed at the how how strong that. Like I was suddenly a little kid who didn't want to get in trouble, yeah. As we all are in some ways. Yeah. So, okay, I think a lot of people think that when a person says, "I was raised in a cult," they immediately remove that experience from anything that they know about. Mm-hmm. They think it's all saffron robes and yeah. It seems perhaps on the surface maybe to be like an outlier experience. But, you know, speaking as someone who grew up in a really conservative, fundamentalist Christian community, the book feels very familiar to me. Mm. Um, I think anyone who's had a deep involvement in a more or less traditional religious community, but especially one that involves, you know, an authoritarian or charismatic, very magnetic, you know, leader. And strong doctrine. Yeah, I think they will really feel this book, and it's it's not the, it's 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 much more, uh, uh, it's the feelings are much more, I think, ubiquitous in the world for people who uh, have been part of a, like a strict you know environment. Mm. Now, the book is just out. So I don't know who's had a chance to read it yet, but has anyone other than me <laughs> who has experienced something, you know, analogous uh, said that to you, like told you, I understand this, even though I didn't experience this specific thing? Well, I'm thinking when, when I wrote the initial piece for The New Yorker, floods, floods mm. of people mm. who come mm-hmm. from all sorts of things from from closer to what I'm talking about to closer to what you're talking about, got in touch with me, these sort of voices who just felt unheard and uh, like an uncommunitied. I know there's a better word for that. Uncommunitied. It's actually a pretty... No, like... That's just, a pretty good like, word, they, they didn't have a community of people like them who yeah. came from these environments oh, but totally were now works. out. Yeah. Un- uncommunitied. I gotta, I gotta workshop that one. Thanks for being my guinea pigs. Um, <laughs> but then also, I now I've found this incredible... Um, resource called the Lalage Center that is for cult survivors Um, and so I've met so many people who you know consider themselves that and a lot of them are from offshoots of fundamentalist um, Judaism Christianity you know and then like there's the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and then there's children of God and then and there's so many and they are these people are not like me 
you know, who got out in the 70s, they're, they got out five years ago. They got out three years ago. Right. Uh, and it's the group, which is probably like 45, 50 people at this point, all women, one gay man. Yeah. Um, and so that, so I do feel like they all sort of, we all sort of connect with each other's stories, even though they're, they're from different decades. And, you know, there, there is a fundamental kind of similarity of experience when you come from all the, I've learned all these new terms, a high control group. Right. Coercive control, right. uh, et cetera. So it's now I'm, I know I'm, I, I ended up teaching a, a writing workshop for those women, uh, for some of them. And I'm, I'm really just sort of learning how to talk about it in a way that's not just about me. Um, cause I feel like I did that enough in those 360 something <laughs> pages. Uh, so i I'm, uh, I'm hoping that, that people understand that it's, it sounds so specific, but there is a universality to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then half the book, some people might be disappointed to hear is not in the cult. Right. <laughs> in a way, that's where the really scary stuff Yeah, is. and right. that's the irony that I, I didn't set out thinking this way, but I realized as the book was taking shape that... It Loki feels like I'm a, a cult apologist. Like, oh, you think that was weird? <laughs> it, Wait, it, it gets real bad. Summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when well, you have just what's a, you know a, a fake nuclear family is really where it gets rough. So, um, yeah, that's really. Um, uh, I, I am. It's only been three days. I, I've, the only review that it's been out. Right. The only reviews I've read are on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Today, actually, Publishers Weekly came out with a really good one. Nice. Oh, nice. I think, I think their final sentence was, it's a book you will not soon forget. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> That's going on the paperback cover. <laughs> when Mary Heron, director Mary Heron, who is my collaborator, read it, she said, I didn't expect it to, but the second half kind of reads like a thriller. It does. <laughs> it, I was thinking about this, that you are, uh, you, what you accomplish in the book is what I call the Apollo 13. Which is, you know historically how it ends and the, whatever, but the getting there is like, what's going to... Like, I was right. literally worried about you, even though, you know, like I knew you finished the book and were okay. But yeah, so, but bravo. Are, are, is, is there talk of adapting, adapting this? Oh, there's talk. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the process of figuring all of that out. Um, and actually just re- of, of late, um, what's crossing a picket line? To, oh, to have right, those conversations, right, right. Right. you know. Right. So, so we, the the woman who's wrapping the book to film, we we decided I can talk to directors, but I can't talk specifics about how I would do the adaptation. Gotcha. And I'm just trying to be really true blue to the strike <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, but definitely, and I, I mean, in my mind, it feels like a limited series. Mm-hmm. But apparently, that's kind of something that people are shying away from. But we in the TV and screenwriting world, TVs are screens, TV and <laughs> film writing no. world know that after the strike, everything might look different True. in True. terms of what people want and what people are looking for. And everyone might just be scrambling hard to get something out so that the world doesn't turn on television entirely because of watching too much reality <laughs> TV. <laughs> are you a fan of like cult related media like Wild West or the Nexium shows or any of that stuff or do you, do you shun it? Um, I do not shun it. I, I, should, I should say, no matter how I feel about it, I watch it for oh. sure. Um, I'm really I'm working on a piece about it hmm. um, because I'm just I've just been thinking about how it operates culturally, how it fits in the true crime canon, mm-hmm. how you say cult and it's true crime, but theoretically there are cults that haven't committed any crimes. It's not a crime to be in a cult. It's right. just that we know about the ones that have committed crimes. Right. 
and for example, the, the, the Lost Children of Sarah Lawrence. Um, that oh, documentary yes, that just came out, and I went to Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> um, actually, and that's such a, that title is such a misnomer because most of the really bad shit happened after they were no longer at Sarah Lawrence. But in that documentary, for example, they have, you know, they were, the, the filmmakers are very, um, they said, <laughs> what's this <laughs> word when you're, you want everyone to know? Anyway. I'm a woman of letters, I promise. Uh, they they were very outspoken about how they wanted to, you know, favor the victims and talk, you know, the survivors rather, and talk from their point of view and not, you know, not spend a lot of time showing you this guy's face, who was the, the the cult leader, the perpetrator, the abuser, and yet we see repeated footage over and over of horrific things of like the guy slapping himself to get his sister to to stop doing something, you know, all these horrible things, and you know him like pulling on a kid's um, tongue with a, a, a pliers. Yeah. And I mean, who is this for? Right. What's, what, what is the appeal here? And because, you know, it's not the inconvenient truth <laughs> where it goes out and people change things. People are, it's still entertainment, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's not changing anything. And so I've just, but I've been sort of thinking about, well, what, what, what does need to change so that there aren't so many calls? And that's sort of where I get stuck because it gets kind of broad. And, and I'm just at the bottom of this mountain of trying to get people to, first of all, just demarginalize the people engaged in cults and stop thinking that it has nothing to do with you or it could never be you. Right. Because um, I'm sure that's how I would feel if I hadn't grown up in one and I didn't choose to be in one, but I'll never know how susceptible I would be because now I'm really not. But the average person who doesn't have that experience or, or a kind of, you know, knee-jerk aversion to, to any kind of thing, anything that smacks of doctrine, you know, it's in L.A. right now, it's it's life coaches and acting coaches turned life coaches turned abusive, coercive leaders who are getting money out of people and getting them to work for free. And I, I, I met a woman who came here, got into an acting class that, excuse me, <clears throat> she came here, she got into an acting class. She's, the, the woman was very revered. She, she got into the clique of people who revered this woman. All of a sudden, she was working for her for free. All of a sudden, she was put, she sold her car so she could go on a trip to India. And all of a sudden, it's five years later, and she hasn't gone on a single audition. Wow. And, it, you know, and if you think of a vulnerable population, it's the, the, the gold rush actor, young oh, actors. Oh, well, I mean, the Scientologists for years would exploit that and, like, you know, offer you these you know, oh, free acting seminar with Jenna Elfman or whatever, you know, and then next thing you knew, you were, you know, vacuuming the celebrity center. All you have to be is exhausted. And the, and sadly, also, um, <coughs> some idealistic. Yeah. Trusting. Mm-hmm. You know, willing to be vulnerable, willing a seeker. Like, all these things that are inherently yeah. good things to be um, that we don't want to shut down. And and what's even crazier is that in the space in the cult recovery space, there are abusive people who just start new cults. Oh, there are two people, yeah. two women in my group who got out of cults and then just got sucked into another one. And of course they did because they don't they don't they aren't their brain is still wired to not see it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I can go on four days, <laughs> but let's talk about movies. I mean, in, in terms of this movie, what's uh, you know the the whatever um, different form that this takes. Um, at first, I didn't want to write it, and my dear Ellen Goldsmith Vane said, "Let's let's unpack that." And I was like, "You know, I just wrote it. I would love another person's perspective on it. I I feel sick of myself. I don't know what even is interesting about my story. Also, I just very deliberately kept screenplay out of my head while writing it because I just wanted it to live as its own thing." 
Um, so also, I just, I don't, I don't know how to adapt that. Who wrote that? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and she, and I, I said, she's like, well, who would your, be your dream um, person to adapt? And before she was nominated for Academy Award, uh, it was Sarah Polly, whose work I mm. love. Yeah. Um, Sarah Polly does not want to do anything that has to do with kids and, and kid actors, uh, even, even writing. Um, well, I mean, there's kid actors in Women Talking. I know. But then if you read Sarah Polly's memoir, which I did. I did, yes. Then you can see, uh, maybe that was, she was like, oh, actually, I thought I could do this, but I can't. I mean, but the, <laughs> the kids don't right. have to go through that much in, in right. her movie. Right. Not, not on screen anyway. Yeah, right. The, uh, the, kid, the kids in my movie do. Would have to. Yeah. Yes, no um, but then also the, my rep said, she goes, just, so do you know how many screenwriters they are, there are who have successful careers? Take a moment to write a book and then don't want to do the adaptation of it. She's like, so I'm like, none. <laughs> She's like, mm-hmm. And then also just said, you know, if, if you don't write the script and you don't direct the movie, then you just become a person who wrote a book at some point. You, and, and all she had to say to me was, all she had to say to me was, uh, you know, creative control. Think about creative control. And I was like, oh, 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 I'm writing it. I'm writing it. You know? I didn't come, I didn't work, work that hard to watch it. I think I just had this image of like, what if it became a movie that I didn't like? Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. I'm like, nope. I'm going to die trying to not make that happen. <laughs> I, I think you would be like Jacqueline Suzanne where you would not tell anyone and just hope, hope that it boosted sales of the tie-in paperback. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I actually yes, do know who Jacqueline hard. Suzanne is. Cause she, wrote, she wrote Scruples, right? That's Judith Cranks. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Jacqueline. <laughs> cons- Valley of the Dolls, Jacqueline Suzanne. Oh, right, 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 right. They're probably, yeah, Krantz probably wished she was uh, Suzanne. And they, she no doubt is yeah. yes, <laughs> to have those numbers. Uh, and, and, I mean, so you are still a screenwriter. Like, that is that is your, like, active kind of... If you had to write one thing in the career space on your tax form right now, it would still be screenwriter, you think? Um, definitely, I, I'm still a screenwriter... Tax, what's a tax form? Um, and <laughs> I mean, so, I'm so bad with money. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised, almost mystified, about how quickly I took to this form and how free I felt. And I was, you know, I would sit down and say, okay, this today I'm going to write about this. My goalpost is to get to this point in the story and build around it. And then it would be hours later. I would have gone all these amazing places, none of which brought me to where I was trying to go. But it was fine because it's my book, and I don't have no one else except my editor, who's like, "What the heck are you talking about?" You know, it's. I was like, "Have I been, you know, a, a freshwater fish in, in in the ocean all this time, or whatever that mixed metaphor is?" Because I really loved it, and I loved the freedom of it. Nice. Um, but right now, the idea of writing a screenplay sounds so easy <laughs> because there are all these rules and there's all these stuff to do. Because <laughs> I'm well, also just because this, I'm I I, it's like being a child again. You know, mm. I've never done it before. I learned so much. Whereas I'm like screenwriting, I I know how this works. I teach this. Sure. You know, so I, yeah. I I walk with a, you know, a little swagger. Whereas this, I was like. Um, hello? <laughs> is this working? So um, I'm both. I'm both. And I, I definitely uh, will continue writing prose, whether that takes the form of... I, the thing about this book that it left me thirsty for my adult voice because I so deliberately wrote it yes. just from the perspective of the kid. But I have so much to say about that sure, subject, yeah. as you can see from talking to me. 
Um, and so I also just I'm sort of itching to 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 get my adult opinion uh, on on the on this page and the screen. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think one of the strengths of the book is that it feels so first person, like and first person in the moment in which it's taking place. Yeah, there is no. And what I learned is like you. That's not looking there. back now. Yeah, if realize, I only knew then, right, exactly. you know, it, it, the, like the, like you are 15 and you are recounting the things that are happening in that voice, and it's you know, that's uh, I and like Dave will ask me stories about my life, and I don't remember things. I don't remember details. I'm. I have I, to wait. I have to wait until we go home to visit his family and and, and sit down for slides night. <laughs> so that everybody else can tell me stuff about hap- what happened in their family in the past. Do happy people have d- not as sharp memories? Maybe. <laughs> it's just incredibly Maybe it's just forgetful. Me. Everyone else in the family, and there really, are a lot of them, <laughs> they remember all I'm of really that. good at like yeah. character actors of the 1930s. Like, <laughs> right. I will give you, like, they'll, you know, Beulah Bondi will pop up in the movie, like, oh, look, it's, you know, and I'll yeah. rattle off credits. But, like, my actual life, civ. I will ask him, so what was that like? How did that feel? Who was there? What happened? He was like, I don't know. I'm like, also just that like you've always dream, like a movie, like dreaming of things and putting yourself in in other worlds. And uh, yeah, it's not if it, if it happened to me, it's not real enough. Like if it's in a movie, it's not, yeah, it's not a good story. That's just like my family, and yeah, <laughs> I skin my knee, whatever. <laughs> Where's Claudette Colbert? <laughs> Well, I know you need to get to the airport, so we're going to let you go. But uh, everybody, again, it's in stores now. Uh, when the world didn't end, is there an audiobook? Did you, did you There's do... an audiobook recorded by me. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I want to hear this now that I've read it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, it, 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 it's out now in all the places. Uh, Gwyneth Returner, where can people keep up with your action online? Um, because of my... My new social media team, uh, which is my sisters, who are both featured in the book. Uh, Instagram, I'm just, I'm making goofy videos with my dog and my girlfriend. There's good, you you deliver on Instagram. (laughs) Uh, Instagram, and there's, I also learned how to do Linktree, and so you can see articles about me. The New York Post wrote about me, and. You are next level. um, I'm, I'm, I'm so social media savvy now, so look out. I just want to thank you for coming yes. over and being on the show. I just, I love having you as a guest. I love having you in my home. We are lucky to know you. Everything good that I can say to you, I want to say it here in front of everybody. It's I'm, like, I'm, I got a big beaming smile that the mic can't hear. You bring, <laughs> you bring joy with you every time you come to our home. And it's just, I think you're the coolest. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Alonzo. And watch the notorious Betty Page. Yes. And all the other things that this woman has done. (laughs) Hello again. (laughs) The portion of the podcast that you just listened to was recorded, uh, what? A couple days ago. 36 hours ago-ish, something like that. And we, uh, we are now... Going to review films. Yes. <laughs> it's what so, we do here. Yeah. The, uh, but I'm, uh, again, I'm thrilled that we had uh, Ms. Turner. Always. Always. to have to, It's always a pleasure to have her. Indeed. And um, so now we're going to take it out of order. Yeah. Because I just feel like it. I feel like the, it's a nice, this will make a nice uh, 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 bracket, bracketing between... 
interview part and then the, the reviews part. We save letters generally for last. Yes. We're going to put them in the middle of the show this week. What? We have one from Holly. She says, inspired by you guys and the number of times you've mentioned the movie Satan Tango, <laughs> I went to Secret Movie Club to watch the whole thing in one day. Wow. Remind me of your opinions on that movie. Uh, it's incredible. We loved it. We, we loved did it. not watch it in one day, though. <laughs> no, we didn't. We watched it in like installments, like two days. I think it took. We we do yeah. like a couple hours and then not. And watch we, it for took a while us like then... two days, I think, to watch the whole thing. You know, it's a seven-hour film. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, we loved it. Um, it's you know you need to be ready. Yeah. <laughs> Just pretend it's one season of television, and then you could yeah. just sit through it in one go. You no could problem. even you could even split it up over the course of a whole day if you want, like take a little breaks yeah. or whatever. Um, I, I I came to Satantango having already seen other Bellatar films, yes, and also having a you know a general enthusiasm for the world of slow cinema, which is you know. Its own thing. This is kind of the pinnacle, you know, the Mount Everest of that in a way. Not well, it's not even the longest one that exists, no. but um, but it's the one people talk about. Sure, you know. Uh, she said, "All I could remember was that it seems to come up a lot on the podcast. <laughs> there were about thirty people watching. We lost a few during the cat scene. Well, yeah, that's the most yeah. arduous uh, segment segment of the film where it." It is, it is suggested, although it wasn't, this wasn't really happening to the cat, but a character abuses a cat and it's tough to watch. Um, but yeah, no, they didn't, they did not harm the cat. No. Uh, is my, I know there's, there's been writing about it and Bellator was like, no, the cat's fine. Like, <laughs> or at least the cat was fine at the end of the shooting. It's probably not alive anymore, but, yes. um, the uh, anyway, uh, she goes, and those of us who got to the end had champagne <laughs> to celebrate. Hurrah! <laughs> so yeah, um, you know, if you ever get a chance, watch Satan Tango. It's it is something. It yeah. is based on a novel. You could read the novel too. Um, Julia, in reference to Rafaela Cara, was. Uh, she says she was at different points of her career the first showgirl to show her midriff on Italian TV. Ooh. She was an Italo disco legend, the reassuring lady of afternoon TV, and a dancing grandma. We miss her terribly. Mm. The midriff thing is a big deal. I mean, Barbara Eden never got to show her navel on. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we were referring, of course, to Italian. Uh, Superstar. Pop, superstar. Pop superstar, Raffaella Cara, who uh, sang Romore in the, uh, well, in the 1970s, but it's featured Feature. prominently in the film L'Immensita, yes. which, please, please, really, go see please this. watch it. Um, and we then had, We had a couple, uh, we didn't have time for all the letters, but we had a couple of people who chimed in thanking us for uh, talking up L'Immensita, and believe me. It was our pleasure to do so. Yeah. 
Uh, Linda says, I did really like Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. No complaints about the movie at all. Except. <laughs> I was 13 in 1970. Oh, okay. And there were some real problems with the clothes. Yeah, I did. Uh, we mentioned that sort of briefly in the review that it's a little bit, you know, 2023 version of 1970. Sure. One or whatever year it's set in. Um, you know, anytime a film goes period with a with a uh, an era in which there were clothes that became kind of a joke, a, a joke. Well, yeah, that's exactly the what I'm. Yeah, um, you don't. You tend to shy away from them. It's, it's hard to step back into that because what it can do is distract distract the viewer and make you think that you are poking fun at this item of clothing or this hairstyle. Right. You know, all over again. It's Austin Powers all of a sudden. Clothes and hairstyles and makeup and stuff of that is period specific, particularly like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the mm-hmm. 90s. If you if you're too faithful, yeah, to it. You can lose the audience because the audience is like, "Oh my god, look at that." You know. It reminds me of that first year that I did the uh, the Outfest Christmas thing with Frank DeCaro, where we had guests on and was sort of a talk show format. Yeah. And we had Cam Clark of the yeah. King Cousins on. Yeah. And before he came out, we screened the clip of his mom singing I'll Be Home for Christmas and yeah. his older brother coming back from Vietnam. And it's this very sort yeah. of famous yeah. emotional TV moment. Uh-huh. The moment that clip started and they saw her hair. Her incredible staggeringly beautiful gigantic hair yes yeah the audience lost it yeah because her hair is huge yeah it's huge hair i did not prepare them for it and they were just and and there was no getting them back you know it was just that they they saw the hair and that was it well i get it you know what here's the problem contextualize things Um, over the decades i'll tell you something gays i'm talking to you right now gays because i know that was who the audience was full of gays it was gays knock it off not everything is a joke. <laughs> Sometimes things were amazing. Her hair was amazing. Yes. That's all. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you gays. We know. We know what you're like. <laughs> uh, okay, anyway, she goes, except I was 13 in 1970. And there were some real problems with the clothes. The adults weren't too bad. The teacher was spot on. But the kids? First, blue jeans. In any given scene, more than one ki- in any given scene with more than one kid, there should have been at least 50% of them in jeans, and we hardly saw any. And the ones Rachel McAdams wears in one scene are about 15 years off. Wrong cut, wrong texture. The patterned cotton pants the kids wore were okay, but I would put them a few years earlier, and for younger kids. Mm. Because 12-year-olds... Uh, by twelve year old, by twelve years old, any kid whose mom dressed them funny, <laughs> we're still wearing them. <laughs> and I don't know where those dresses the kids were came from. The kids were wearing came from. I've never seen anything like that in my life. <laughs> now maybe in Western Canada we dressed totally differently than they did in New Jersey, but uh, it's entirely possible that Western Canada and New Jersey were different. Yeah, absolutely. I remember very specifically in 1980 
when I was a kid in Roswell, New Mexico. Before the internet, it was before the flattening of culture in the United States, where everyone knows the same things at the same time. Right. Everyone dresses the everyone same. Everyone at the same gap. Everywhere you go, yeah. Regional differences were much like more pronounced. Yeah. I remember we took a church youth group trip to Los Angeles. And OMG. Culture shock. Culture shock. The new wave teens of LA in 1980, it was everywhere. And I remember thinking, why can't I live here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I, I, uh. And Canada uh, does have a special relationship with denim, as we know. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we were not dressing the same way in, uh, in Roswell, New Mexico in 1980, as the kids in Los Angeles were dressing in 1980 at all. So, yeah, it's yeah. entirely possible that this is very, like, geographically specific 1970 wear, but yeah. who can say? Could be. Uh, Shadi says, why is Alonzo criticizing this great Hallmark movie? She's referring to Love Again. Yes. Why is Alonzo criticizing this great Hallmark movie made supreme by Celine Dion when no other film will make you laugh more in 2023? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think if I had seen it with people with whom I could laugh at it, yeah. I would have had a much more fun time. Right. But I was seeing it on opening night with other folks who seem to be there unironically. Yeah. And so I was not going to be the, 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 I did not want to be Robert De Niro in um, Cape Fear <laughs> smoking a cigar and being all ha 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 and everything. This time, she continues, this time next year, are you guys going to remember a single scene from Fast X or any Marvel movie or the new Mission Impossible? No. Celine Dion for the Golden Globe, Best Supporting Actress in a Musical or Comedy. <laughs> oh, I'm going to remember Jason uh, Momoa in Fast X. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, P.S. Apparently the pandemic happened just as they were starting to shoot. <sighs> so they had to switch continents. Hence the London-New York space-time warp and the bizarrely empty offices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Other movies pulled it off better, including Hallmark. <laughs> and we have a five-star review to read. Yeah, we do. From... Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll read it on the show. This is from Grant, the movie and TV guy. Thank he you, says, Grant. Alonzo and Dave are amazing critics who give great insights and recommendations. Well, that's accurate. <laughs> I also love the personal day-to-day -day stories and discussions of dinners that need to be prepared. <laughs> It feels like hanging out with friends and hearing them tell stories that some podcasts, uh, I get downright excited when a new episode drops. Oh, sorry. Some podcasts, I get downright excited when a new episode drops, and this is one of them. I hope you guys never stop doing this show. We are going to do this show until uh, Alonzo eats the murder pudding. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Grant. That was very kind of you. Yes. Uh, so... Uh, and we might as well say this. We have a Patreon. We sure do. And here's how you get in on it. You go there and you decide how much money you want to pay for how many things you want to listen to. So, like, 
there are a variety of other podcasts that we do. There's Linoleum Knife Presents More Linoleum Knife, where we uh, take one film and talk about it uh, for a longer period of time. It is an older film. So the two most recent that we did were 1980s Can't Stop the Music and 1929's Experimental Silent Film. Man with a movie camera. So don't tell us we don't cover the waterfront. We cover the the, the lakes and the rivers that you're used to. <laughs> and we also have a show called LKTV where we talk about television and a show called Linoleum Knife and Fork, which is a food podcast hosted by two film critics who have no business hosting a food podcast. And here we are. We have... Uh, club meetings once a month. We all sit down and watch a movie together and talk about it on a Saturday night because who wants to really go out anywhere on Indeed. Saturday night? The parking, the traffic, the people, it's terrible. Stay home, watch a movie with us. Also, it's 6 o'clock Pacific, so odds are you could do this and then go out And after. go out to the club yeah. after. Um, the Even if you started at 9 on the East Coast, yeah. you, could hit, you could leave at 11 p.m. and go... You know, it's the shake of the evening. Uh, the what? The shake of the evening. No, the is shank. Is it the shank? I swear, in in um, the glass menagerie, she says the shake of the evening. I'm thinking Rosemary Clooney's song, "The Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening." Yeah, well, she says in the shank of the night. Okay, I was thinking about Amanda Wingfield in Tennessee Williams, the the Glass Menagerie. I could swear she says the shake of the evening, but I could be wrong. Maybe it is the shank. Uh, I just looked it up. The shank of the evening is the main or the best part of the evening. Ah, so yeah. me and Rosemary Clooney. Today I learned we know things. I learned that. Did you just mishear it all this time? I guess so. Oh, all right. So I learned that, and I learned that um, Bob Hope is actually like a gay rights hero. Well, he's dead now. He's so, dead now, but know. nonetheless, while he was alive, he actually like went after Anita Bryant and stuff, and you know, it, there's a whole article in the Nation by Ben Schwartz about it. Read it. It's I, I will read it. Um, Anyway, and then there's a show called Linoleum Nights where we kind of just talk about anything we want. And that's uh, a live show that we do on Sunday mornings. I know. Just go with it. It's called Linoleum Nights. We do it on Sunday morning. Um, And so uh, we're selling it if you're buying it. Linoleum Knife. Patreon.com. Patreon.com slash Linoleum Knife. Yeah. All right. How's about we talk about some cinema? Why not? All right. Well, we're going to start by talking about Guardians of the Galaxy, and then we'll talk about cinema. Oh. Yes, we are, uh, you know, as we've mentioned before, catching up on... Uh, well, we, Martin we, Scorsese there for you. Uh, there you go. Yeah. We took about a month off to get this book finished, me writing and Dave editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we have some catching up to do. And Lots this of is, it. This is one of those catch-ups. The, well, the this entire episode is a catch-up well, epi- episode. But no, some... I mean... Oh, well, okay. No, you heard my feelings just yeah, open. Yeah, that's so true. That's, yeah, that's, that's true. We're keeping it you're, fresh. You're right. This is fresh. Exciting. And new. All right, so this is the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie and mm-hmm. the 103rd Marvel movie <laughs> in the past two years. Um, all right, so all the Guardians are... In a, I'm going to explain what happens in this movie because I, I, I just saw it the other day. He's going to explain it Dave White style. I, no, I'm going to explain it like a real... Person who knows things. Oh, okay. You don't... Listen. 
You just. I have a question before you begin. Okay, what? Did you like at least read the wiki pages of the previous two movies to remind yourself what had happened in them? Why would I want to do that? I figured as much, but I just wanted to check. All right, so the Guardians are in a place called Nowhere, which I think they were in for the holiday special. That is correct. Am I right? Okay, I'm right. All right. Because it's a place that looks kind of Blade Runner-y. That's the one. But also like um, Sesame Street? Kind of. of. Okay. The the Americana at brand, yes. (laughs) And they uh, are there. And then here comes a guy who is um, uh, uh, young and blonde. And he flies through the air and he smashes into everything. And he hurts uh, Rocket. Right? Okay. So that's, anyway. um, And then Nebula gets him. She's Nebula is the blue one, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. The blue one is Nebula. And then she gets him. And then they have to go fight a guy that I've never seen before. The high... Evolutionary. The high evolutionary. And he's got Rocket. No. In the, no. He wants Rocket. He wants Rocket. Oh, that's right. Because he invented Rocket. Yes. All right. So then we cut to animals being tortured. And that's good for the kids yes. to watch. <laughs> Cue Sarah McLaughlin. You think you think Seth and Tongo has a problem <laughs> with cats. <laughs> they they okay now the, the cat in Seth and Tongo was a real cat, but again, not abused. Um these are CGI animals. And yet somehow... They are abused. And yet somehow I felt hideous watching mm-hmm. what is happening to these animals. They are, like, their limbs are cut off and they put mechanical limbs on them and they put, like, the implant machines inside them. It's just... A it, bunny it, with a clamp mouth. It is so upsetting uh, yeah. to look at these animals. It's really hideous. And so, but we go there because this is Rocket's past. It's his origin story. This is his origin story, right? He's the raccoon. And so when he was a little, a little <coughs> baby raccoon, the high evolutionary did stuff to him and also put a, a, a like a kill switch in him. Yeah. So that... You couldn't turn him off. You could, if you hit the kill switch, he would just self-destruct, or I guess something like that. There's some sort of proprietary. Code yeah, proprietary. That's the word that per, <laughs> that that when Rocket is injured, it prevents the Guardians from performing like life-saving procedures, right? Because it would short him out or short him out, hit the kill switch, whatever. So, here's what I like about this movie: everybody gangs up together. To go save the little raccoon. <laughs> and that's the whole... This two and a half hour film... <laughs> is about friendship and saving the life of a little mechanical raccoon. <laughs> who is not... He's part raccoon and part, like, robot or something at this point? Uh, like, he's what, been, is, he's, what is Rocket, he anyway? Has been, he has been evolved. All right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the high evolutionary guy is doing all these experiments to animals because he wants to build a different earth. Yeah. Yes? Okay. And no one likes it, and everyone's mad, and they want to fight him, 
And so they fight him. But then they have to go get Gamora, who is Zoe Saldana. Right. Only it's not her. It's like the fake her it's, that she's changed. I can't even I don't walk know, you through I don't know this what part. that means. It's basically the version uh, the version of what she was originally like as Thanos' daughter and not the one who that has was fallen in, love in love with, with Chris Pratt. Exactly. So Chris Pratt's like, but we were, but we were lovers, and she's like, I have no idea who you are. <laughs> Which I that I laughed out loud, <laughs> and I know that was supposed to be emotional in the film. I don't know her, but she, her her whole attitude to him, I was like, ha ha. <laughs> and then everybody fight, fight, fights for a long time, and they fight, fight, fight some more, uh, and then like. Can I tell what happens at the end? I, I think we might. Am I not I, supposed I, to? Look, it's been out long enough at this point. Now. Uh, maybe we shouldn't, because I'm sure there are people who still haven't seen it yet. Oh, who okay, might feel okay. like they want to see it. But stuff happens at the end that made me think, because I'm a human being, mm-hmm. that made me think, oh, look, look, what's happening here at this ending where I'm, I'm maybe fe- having a little bit of a feeling. Yeah. There's also and, stuff in that ending that is like, but then also, are you kidding me with this? Yes, but then also, I thought, well, no, that's not gonna. This isn't gonna. There's gonna be even more, yeah, <laughs> of everyone doing the things they do. So I, I, I'm so I'm alluding to something, but anyway, it's the um, thing that never ever happens in comic book movies unless you are Bruce Wayne's parents, basically. Right. So, um, what did you think about this? I did not care for it. Um, I, uh, I think the pivot from this being pretty much the jokiest corner of the Marvel universe to the let's torture animals in cages and then put children in cages, uh, movie was like, whoa, what? Well, the, the, the kids in cages, I mean, you know, you get what that's about. Uh, we, yeah, but it's still. And no, and no one's torturing them. They're just in cages. Yeah. It's still a lot. Though. And then they, they all. When everything goes down, the, the kids are all like, "We we're escaping," you know. Like, I, nonetheless, oh, I'm sorry, that's a spoiler, but who cares? Because that's not that's barely course. a spoiler. But yeah. nonetheless, I don't think the movie <laughs> earned the right to get this dark and creepy. Well, and I don't perhaps. think it, I don't think it plays. Um, I think a lot of it looks cruddy. Like nowhere looks cruddy all the time. Was it is it meant to be a fun place to live? Well, no, it, not that it has to be gorgeous, <laughs> but it just it looks like a set. It looks like oh, it absolutely looks like a set. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as opposed to you skip the whole planet of skin. Well, the the gloopy the gloopy glorpy planet. Yeah, is a, that was awesome. That's a blast. Yeah, uh, I like that. Oh, and that's the other thing. Like during that whole the gloopy glorpy planet, there's like still these moments of like the. The, the, the wiseacre banter of yore. And it's like, no, 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 movie. If you want to be like, let's torture animals and put children in cages, you can't also have like, oh, is it hilarious when Mantis makes, you know, men fall in love with Drax, you know? like I mean, that's kind of funny still. It, it just, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a total... Are you, are, you, are, you, are you upset that it veers from comedy to tragedy I'm not on saying, a dime? I, I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm saying you yeah. need a shorter hand at tonal shifts than Perhaps. James Gunn possesses. Perhaps you're right. Um, so yeah, I found a lot of that just really irritating. Um, yeah, I, I just... I, the tonal shifts are the big problem for me, where it's it's trying to be serious but also goofy. And um, 
Adam Warlock, the, whose name you did not mention, he's the golden guy who shows up at the beginning and beats everybody up. What's his name? His name is Adam Warlock. Warlock. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. In the comics, I never it, caught his. I never caught his name. Well, they. <laughs> here's the part of the problem here. In the comics, a fascinating character with a rich backstory. In this movie, kind of a lunkhead. Is he gonna be? In I guess he's gonna be in more films. Yes. Will Will uh, Poulter. Yes. Yeah. 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 But like, who is the the son of the character played by Elizabeth Debicki, who popped up in two? Um, For like three seconds, I was like, "Is that Tilda Swinton?" <laughs> Just in another costume. She plays like... somebody else in the MCU. <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't think this works, and and I just I found it really just sort of sludgy and not fun, and not up to the task of trying to be, trying to get all you know sort of like grim about certain things. Also, there's like a genocide in this movie that's sort of shrugged off. A high evolutionary yeah. has created a whole fake Earth. He has populated yeah. it with a bunch of his creatures. And he's once again disappointed that his creatures don't work out the way they're supposed to. So right. he's just going to kill them all. Right, the right, right. The movie sort of shrugs at this. Oops. You know, um, yeah. I, I'm not saying these movies can't go for bigger, more difficult subject matter. But uh, you need to lay your groundwork a little better. I think it's hard when you've predicated... You know this film on two films that were comedies. Yeah, action action comedies, but still comedies. Uh, and you're still doing the needle drop bit, but now the needle drops don't mean anything. Well, he found a an iPod or a, whatever. No, a Zune. That's, that's the joke. Same difference. But yeah, that 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 that's a diegetic excuse for them to exist. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't mean anything emotionally the way they did in the first and some of the second movie. Right. Okay, but that Space Hog song is dope. <laughs> um, <laughs> never mind then. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. Well, nothing matters. So no, who cares? But it, it only matters because if, if because I, I don't know, I, I frankly am getting really irritated with needle drops as a shorthand for oh, whatever yeah, for they're a shorthand for. Yeah, yeah. Like, unless you are Martin Scorsese, like, you better really know what you're doing and mm-hmm. have some thing behind it. And the first movie does a very good job of getting, like, here's why these songs, here's why they matter to this character, here's what they mean, here's why he knows them all by heart. And now it is literally a random playlist. Okay, so, um, I will, uh, all right, all superhero IP. Yes. Right. They all feel, as I'm watching them, right, they all feel like these monumental undertakings that are a type of cinema, like I was goofing about the Martin Scorsese sure. thing that he said that one time. At the beginning, obviously, they are part of the landscape sure. of movies and you know film going. I won't I won't dismiss them as mere audiovisual entertainment the way he did, um, because they involve uh, these feats of technical production and and there's a there's always a an all hands on deck sort of feel. To even the worst of them, you know, you they are, they are constructions that are, they're big, they're big, big things. Mm-hmm. Even though so much of them are like, basically animated films with people walking around in them. Yes, 
but what I was, what I'm about to get at is I, they're like now, you know, interlocking pieces of this industrial puzzle. And if you, as a viewer, won't try to gather up all of them and work diligently alongside the corporation, <laughs> you are uh, quite often just sort of left behind. Yeah. Now, I have developed a method of viewership of these films that allows me to say, okay, you know what? I don't know what this is. Moving on. <laughs> and then I expect the movie to keep me afloat, and it always does. Hmm. It's built in. They built in to these films. They build into these films now the knowledge that you don't always know what's going on. And even when it's over, you might not have known exactly everything that was going on because you may have missed this or that other film or TV show. Because right. now it has extended into the world of streaming television where yes. you're expected to... Have watched uh, Loki and WandaVision. Have, yeah, have watched all these other things that are now going to be included as... Canonical. In the films. And I I have other things to do with my <laughs> life. So... Um, the films connect the dots for you. Now, obviously, you have to be paying attention for the one sentence that's going <laughs> to connect to that dot, but they, they connect the dots for you. And so you get everything you need from whatever film you happen to plop yourself down into in the middle of. Uh, but they are such big, big, big things, and they're so overwhelming that you can't even be expected to remember everything that you just saw <laughs> because the visual and auditory information is coming at you so uh, relentlessly mm -hmm. that there's no time to think about what you've seen. You're just moving on to the next sensation. If that is the kind of film you want to see, that is a fine way to spend two and a half hours. <laughs> right? So... On the other hand, I think this is, it, it's disheartening to me because it eliminates surprise mm. and it eliminates your ability as a viewer to just think your thoughts while you're watching the film, you know. Uh, well, it's the opposite of slow cinema that way. Right. <laughs> but this isn't even just not slow cinema. It's, it's barrage yeah. cinema, it's, which is what we it, said last week about Fast X. Right. It's anti-contemplative. <laughs> The money at stake eliminates surprise as well because mm. they have an IP to, to maintain. Right. So the big spoiler from last week's Fast X, maybe I should have seen it coming two films ago. You know, maybe I should have remembered that in the universe of Fast X, what you think happened five movies ago, maybe it didn't really happen. Right. You know? So, because they want to keep you coming back with these, you know, uh, 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 plot lines that never resolve and never die. Therefore, for a film like Guardians of the Galaxy, you have to bring with you a sense of affection for the characters. Mm -hmm. And like that they're very sweet to each other and they bicker and they fight and they're funny to each other and they, they're, you know a crew, they're friends, and they're yeah. going to fight together to save Rocket. 
And they're a chosen family. Yeah. If you are going to give yourself, if you're going to give that much of yourself to it, uh, even though it has no interest in really giving anything back to you <laughs> that's lasting because it's on to the next movie now, then yeah, go enjoy yourself. Um, well, here, I think these are not unlike soap operas right, in that right. they can't really end and they will drag out, you know, whatever these encounters are or sort of changes in character or whatever, yeah. but very often return back to one because they want to keep you engaged and you live in the hope that the thing that you want to happen will happen. But then when it does happen, that's not dramatically interesting. So they then have to then undo that and move on to something else. So I like, I like, I liked the planet of goop. Yeah. You know, I liked that it dared to be dark, even though the way it dared to be dark was like literally dark scenes <laughs> yes. and, and, and things that I didn't want to look at. Yeah. You know, um, I did like the 2001 ish, like astronaut costumes they put on at one point. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the, everybody got their own color. You know what else is great? And so Chris Pratt's hair has never looked better. <laughs> I found myself just fixated on how like luxuriously curly and like meticulously tousled it was. I just was like, I just want to touch your hair. <laughs> it's kind of like the way I always wanted to touch your hair, you right know. After I wash it. Um, the uh, yo, his hair is amazing uh, <laughs> in this film. Um, and I will say one more thing: it's even louder. Than Fast X was. Wow. I spent the uh, last 40 minutes kind of every time something was coming, I, mm-hmm. my, just my fingers I put up to my ears. So the the the, 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 the thing for me now is... Um, earplugs? Earplugs to the... Earplugs to the cinema. Mm. Well, I mean, not everything. But <laughs> if I'm seeing... Not to a Nicole Holof Center or a Kelly Reichardt movie. If I'm seeing <laughs> industrial... Industrial films, which yes. is what this is right. and what Fast X is. Uh, earplugs. Mm. Because, as I said in my monthly tweet, <laughs> I've had all the sound that I can feel that I can take. <laughs> I'm 100 years old, and my ears are very delicate now. So, uh, you know, I hate an IP. <laughs> But I, you know, I kind of like the Guardians. I'm just torn. It's, it's. I I have generally been a fan of the Guardians up until now. And I I felt like if they wanted to veer them off in a new direction, fine. But I don't think they they did it well. Can you talk about a film that I did not see at all and probably won't, at least until it organically passes in front of my eyes as I'm sitting on a couch because it's already out of theaters, I think. Uh, I think so, yes. It, it tanked so uh, colossally yeah. that I don't even think it's in movie theaters anymore. Uh, Renfield. <sighs> tell me tell me about it. A movie I have pretty much already completely forgotten about. Okay, well then do we have to talk about I'll it? I'll do my best. All right. <laughs> All right, so Nicholas Holt is Renfield. He is, you know, Dracula's devoted servant. We get a few flashbacks in which basically we see footage from the Todd Browning uh, Dracula. Right. It is Todd Browning, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, with sorry, I just had this momentarily flash of like, wait, right, what? Um, with with you know Nic- Nicholas Cage and uh, and Nicholas Holt's like faces, uh, you know, smooshed in. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, so yeah, so so uh, you know, Renfield is 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 sick of being uh, Dracula's familiar, but what are you gonna do? He joins this like narcissist support group, you know, or, or you know, victims of narcissist support group. Uh-huh. And then um, they're in New Orleans, and they wind up. Renfield winds up falling in love for a cop played by Aquafina, okay, who is trying to take down the crime family that killed her dad. All right, as is her sister, who is a Fed. Okay, and then. The the son of the the matriarch of the crime family, who is played by Jean Ralphio, <laughs> like oh no, maybe see, maybe I gotta go see like, this movie. Get, gets Dracula. It's to, streaming now, to, by the way. To you bite can, him. You and, can rent it for twenty bucks. And so then, so Dracula and the crime family are gonna like try and take over, but then Renfield and the cop are gonna try and stop them. And uh, this movie. It throws so many, so much spaghetti at the wall, and none of it sticks. Okay, like the the Renfield, you know, as beleaguered assistant stuff is such a weak tea take on, you know, uh, 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 the guy on What We Do in the Shadows, right? Uh, Guillermo, is that yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Guillermo on What We Do in the Shadows, uh, and then like the cop stuff is like, what is even happening? Why is this in a Dracula movie? I don't even get it. Um, the matriarch of the crime family is at least played by Shorty Agdashlu. Um, cool. But uh, she's given nothing cool to do or say. Yeah, this movie, it does not work. And you're just sitting there watching it not work. It's one of those. Hmm. It's, it, yeah, big waste of time for all involved. Well, bummer. Yeah. Well, well uh, you and I both saw Book Club Next Chapter. Yeah, we did. <laughs> In which uh, all the single ladies. All the single ladies. Are they single? Actually, they're not. Mary oh, yeah, Virgin is married to Coach right. on Coach. Um, from Coach on Coach. <laughs> no. She's married to, to uh, uh, the man who played Coach. On Coach. On Coach, yes. you see. Okay. They go to Italy. Yes. They have maybe read a book. Uh, uh, there's some references to they, the alchemist in passing, but they very much in passing. They maybe read a book, but they mostly just want to go to Italy. So they go to Italy. Yeah. And... Which is better than hearing them talk about Fifty Shades of Grey every ten minutes. <laughs> which is what happens in the first movie. <laughs> they go to Italy and they um, they eat. Yep. And they shop. Mm-hmm. And they have sex, not with each other. No. Uh, and one of them gets married. Yeah. And they drink Prosecco. They drink uh, wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Uh, so this, uh, I'll, I will give, actually this movie is, is it's cute. You know, it, it, it's right. in that category. Right. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's very, uh, it's about nothing, but it is adorable. Yeah. And I enjoyed my time. At the uh, press screening, uh, all four of these actresses are so very appealing. Jan Fonda, Diane Keaton, Candace, Candace Bergen. Bergen, Mary Steenburgen. Uh, they are 
a pleasure to see on screen together enjoying life and having uh, fun lady times in Italy. Yeah. Like, the movie starts with an acknowledgement of COVID, which I don't feel like we see enough in movies right now. I think so often right. movies and TV They've shows They've been are conducting their book club on Zoom. Pretending that never and happened. And now they're back together again. Yes. And instead of just going to someone's house, they go, hey, what if we just go to Italy? <laughs> well, they go to Italy because Jane Fonda's character is going to get married to... It's a, it's a bachelorette to trip. To Don Johnson's character. Yeah. So it's a bachelorette trip and... Off they go with their one roller bag apiece. One each. Yeah. Even yeah. though even though Jane Fonda's character like talks about what a clothes horse and makeup maven she is. Right. We're still supposed to believe that she's going to go overseas with one bag. Listen. It becomes important to the plot. Later. If you, yes. <laughs> Don't question it. Yes. Uh, no, th- this is, this is a fun, breezy kind of hangout sort of kind of road trip movie. Uh, and it does offer uh, a reunion between Candace Bergen and um, uh, uh, not Marcello Mastroianni, the other guy, uh, Giancarlo Giannini, yes. uh, with whom she co-starred in Lena Vertmuller's The End of the World in Our Usual Bed on, on a, a Night, night Full of, of Rain. Um, here's what, there's the one thing that bugs me about this movie. These are, what, it, what is it, Alonzo? I think you'll agree with me on this. Mute, I don't know. All four of these actresses... <laughs> Talented comedians have been for ages. Yes. They get saddled with the the, the most (laughs) anvil double entendres imaginable. (laughs) And then they hammer the anvil. Right. So yeah. it's like, yeah. like Jane Fonda literally like deepens her register and like squints her eyes and just like does everything but like squeeze a bicycle horn to let you know that she's saying something a little off color. Look at the statue of David. Doesn't it have a tiny penis? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think somebody's getting an amuse-bouche already. Like, could we could we write something better for them and then could y'all yeah, deliver nice. these with a little bit lighter a touch? It would be nice if the script were good. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's a small yeah, thing, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, okay. uh, Andy Garcia... It is Andy Garcia, and I just love seeing him in movies. Um, yeah, because he's Andy Garcia. Yeah, and, and and the weird thing about this movie is that after all of the like, wakata wa double entendres the whole time, yeah. we get to the wedding at the end, and we get like four, like sincere romantic monologues in yeah. a row from different performers. Yeah, and you're like, oh. This movie had this, like, in its chamber the whole time mm. while we were, you know, gallivanting around and, you know, getting lost in the countryside. Like, that, like this movie had the potential, given the talent on hand, to have been, you know, I don't know, a real movie. And they just didn't feel like it. They just wanted to be, like, breezy. And breezy's fine, and they do breezy well. But, you know, they don't do breezy nearly as well as they do, you know, uh, uh, forthright. <laughs> We recorded a review of this for KCRW a few yes. weeks ago, and I don't know what made it to air and what didn't, but uh, one of the things I do remember saying, and I'll say it again here, it's like if the White Lotus 
didn't have murder. <laughs> and everyone was nice yes. and talked about how much they cared about each other. And got and everything they wanted. Got to go on vacation and have sex and drink wine and shop and get everything they wanted <laughs> with no problems. There is no conflict None. in this film at all. There is not one grain <laughs> of sand to make a pearl here. <laughs> it confounds and repels any sort of critical analysis uh, and therefore... Nothing matters. Uh, I, 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 I love these four women. I love uh, watching them. They feel like people I've been, well, they don't feel like people I've been watching in films my entire life. They are people I've been watching in films my entire life. Right. And they've, Diane Keaton has great Diane Keaton outfits. Oh, yeah. There's an entire scene in a bridal shop. And we know from movies like this that everybody's going to try on all the meringues. And Diane Keaton is like, nah, nah, nah. And the guy's like, oh, I know. I've got one for you. And brings out the Diane Keatoniest outfit yeah, yeah. you ever saw in yeah. your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's about nothing. And I enjoyed myself very much. Yeah. That's that. That's yeah. that on that. Yeah. It's a it's a it's the movie equivalent of day drinking. Yeah. For sure. Okay. The last two films we're going to talk about in my head uh-huh. are kind of tangentially connected. Well, they are A24 films directed by women directors that we love. That's not what I'm talking about. I know, but I'm just throwing that in there. I'm talking about how they are both about Artists, yes, experiencing trouble with their art, but one of them is about the process and the seriousness of the artist in making art, and the other one is about lying and ego and you know feelings and stuff like that. So, although they both move back and forth. Between these two subjects. So, I, I mean, let's talk about You Hurt My Feelings first. Okay. Yeah. Please describe. Uh, sure. So, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus stars as a woman who is an author. She has published a memoir. She has just written her first novel and has been waiting for her, uh, her agent to read it and get back to her about it. Uh, in the meantime, she teaches a class in creative writing at the New School, uh, her husband, played by Tobias Menzies, is a therapist who feels like he's kind of losing his mojo and not uh, being as good a therapist as he used to be. Um, he has been very reassuring to her along the way about uh, her writing and telling her that the book is great and, you know, that, of course, you know, the people are going to love it when they finally read it. Uh, one day, uh, she and her sister, played by Michaela Watkins, uh, happen to run into their respective husbands uh, out shopping and just as they're about to sneak up on them and surprise them they overhear Tobias Menzies saying I hate her new book <laughs> <laughs> and this sets off a whole cavalcade of emotion and self doubt and recrimination and like what else are you lying to me about and how could you and I'm just yep. I was trying to be supportive well that's not but you didn't and how could I and you um, and and it, it, it we see the many the many ways in which a relationship rests on a number of fairly fragile pedestals uh, that need to be maintained in certain ways, and how this couple comes to understand 
the way to be truly supportive of each other and how to, you know, understand the difference between saying something, you know, positive and supportive and how the other person takes that. Like later in the film, he says, you always say I'm a great therapist. And she says, you are. And he responds, how would you know? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so what did you think? Oh, God, I love this movie. Yeah. I love it so much. He has these some amazing uh, uh, clients. He... He, Tobias Menzies, okay. the, the therapist. Who, until this film, I was... He was not on my radar. I don't think I've ever... And I looked him up, either. and he is everywhere. Yeah. He's British, and he has done... And because he's British... Of course. <laughs> he's done a ton of television, lots of films... An, an astonishing amount of stage work, radio dramas over wow. there. Like, you name a thing, dude is is on it and in it. Yeah. Like and he was brand new to me. Half of the people in this movie are he's apparently... On the, he's on the, he was on The Crown for uh, a couple of seasons as Prince Philip. Well, apparently, like, half the people in this movie are on Succession. So, oh, like, yeah, yeah, no, it's no. all, yeah. you know, who didn't want to be in this. So, like, Amber Tamblyn and David Cross play a, a bickering couple <laughs> who have been going to see Tobias Menzies for years. and They are married in real life. They are married in real life. Yeah. And the character is the one thing, apparently, that brings them together is they both decide that he's not helping them at all. Right. Um, you know, you ha- uh, their, their son is played by Owen Teague, who's doing a lot of stuff these days. Uh, another one of his uh, clients is played by uh, Zach Cherry, Who's on Succession and Severance? Yeah, um, yeah. This movie is just you know I, I love Nicole Hall of Center's stuff so much because she is really empathetic and really just so observant about the little petty, yeah, <laughs> the little or the the lies that we tell ourselves and each other just yeah. to get through the day. Yeah. Um, and while this may sound very foofy, like oh, New Yorkers and she's an author and he's a therapist, what it well, said, it, is, it is that but it go is. On. But yeah. what but what she is actually saying about relationships and about the way that people are or are not honest with each other, yeah. I think is totally universal. Yeah. I think anybody who's been in a long-term relationship with anybody will recognize elements of how these characters interact and what they feel about each other and how they feel the best way to express that to each other is. Um, so, you know, even though, you know, yes, her characters are, are white and upscale and, you know, East Coasters and all that stuff, this movie's hitting it's on a, a real, lot. It's a real Hannah and her sisters kind of situation with the with the, the yeah. character. Beautiful casual movie. separates. Yeah. Um, but but nonetheless, universal truths. Yeah. I um first of all, Ju- Julia Louis Dreyfus. <laughs> I think she can do anything sometimes. Like I really and I love that she's now sort of gonna be a recurring person. She's a great voice for this yeah. writer, yes. And uh, and again, the the the, socio, the socioeconomics of it are there for a reason uh, because I'm just figuring that's Nicole Holop Center's world, you know. Um, and you know, go with go with what you're good at depicting. So in that way, she is giving us. New Yorkers with some money and good apartments and. Nothing to worry about except their own, again, little narcissistic stuff. Sure. 
I just said Hannah and her sisters, but the kind of thing that Woody Allen used to do in the 70s and 80s, you know, that 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 New York City based comedy, that bubble of people with no actual problems, (laughs) but plenty of constructive ones, plenty of, you know, internal, you know, interpersonal problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I always like those movies. So I like what Nicole Holofcener does with, you know, putting those little feelings that are not little when you're feeling them, sure, but putting them under a microscope and showing you how people, again, like you said, you lie to people for the sake of their, for the sake of their feelings. And to reference the title, you know, the parents tell the kid, Oh, I know you're such a great writer. And he's like, you've never read anything I've written. <laughs> I haven't and finished this thing yet. I haven't even finished what I'm writing. And But they're like, but you can do it. We believe in you. You know, the husband who has, he's a psychiatrist who, as you said, is not uh, doing well in his practice in that none of his patients uh, are helped by him. The older guy is. And he knows, yeah, the older guy is. But he knows that he knows nothing about writing. So all he can do as a husband who loves his wife is to say, yeah, it's great. Because if he were to say, hey, I don't like this, she could very easily say, well, what do you know about it? <laughs> it's true. It's what do you no know win. about writing other than you probably read books? Did, did you notice the name of the production company at the, mm, at the end of the movie? No. I'm wondering if this was the original title, the 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 trademark copyright whatever production company is was it's just my opinion pictures <laughs> oh really yeah. yeah maybe that was the original title who knows um but the the idea that you soften up your opinions for the people you love mm-hmm. is universal yeah and it's something that if you're watching this film, you you get it. Now, if I'm going to complain about anything, it's that the discomfort that could have been really dug into here, it doesn't go that deep. You know, no one is really pinned to the mat for their little lies that they've told to anyone else. Um, it is... It it, 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 it it lets everyone off the hook, I think, uh, in a way that maybe wouldn't happen with regular, you know, uh, people. Like, maybe you would hold that grudge. I, I um, think that the reason that they're able to get away with the way that it goes is that there are so many examples of her character doing the same thing in other Well, yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's what... It, it, rather than it being like, yeah. hey, this thing happened to me, it's a, oh, I do this too. I do oh, this too. Yeah. Okay, you know. Yeah. Especially when it gets down to like the writing of the book and the publishing of the book. Yeah. And even the review blurbs that annoy her. <laughs> yes. Like, well, how come they said mine was really great and someone else's was brilliant? Yeah, exactly. Like, harumph. And, you, you, know. and you even see like, you know, uh, the way that her mother is, played by yeah. the great Jeannie Berlin, like how much of, you know, and, 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 you know, she wrote an entire book about how her dad 
emotionally abused her by calling her dumb all the time. Right. You know, and so obviously it's just, it, how do you then, you know, be the opposite of that, you know, by right. being like effusive, even when you don't know what you're talking about, but just in an attempt to be, you know, supportive. And on a personal note, uh, I did feel a little smug True. while watching it <coughs> uh, because uh, you are ruthless. <laughs> if anybody watches this movie and thinks that that's how that Dave White has spared my feelings for a second <laughs> about something I've written, let me be the first to tell you, oh, no, this movie is not about Dave White because Dave White <laughs> lets it all hang out. <laughs> Be, be be specific about what you're talking about. Rare is the I'm moment. Not, I'm not telling you your hair looks terrible. No, but rare is the moment that Dave White has not read something that I have written and come back at me with, you know, notes or complaints. And I have not responded with, you're mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, this That's is, how honest he is. This is how we work together. We both write in our lives. And we, the first person who reads uh, what we write is each other. And my complaint is that I think you are soft on me. And your complaint is that I am mean. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing. uh, This also, I think, speaks to the way that we write. Okay. I I will, like, out a draft and immediately show it to you, and then you will pick out all the things that are wrong with it. And, you know, it's very valuable to help me reshape. You will stew and agonize and rewrite and put it aside for a day and come back and look at it again. Yes. I'm very, I'm really slow. By the time I get it, you've already been mean to you. So oh, well, no, there is that. <laughs> so there's a lot I'm less... I'm not just mean to you. I'm mean to me. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot less for me to try and pick at. By the time it gets to me, I'm like, well, this needs a comma here, you know? But like, right. for the most part, you've pretty much got it figured out. But I have always been of the belief that if you're handing... If you are handing me your work to look mm-hmm. at and, and, and edit... Yes. Then it's my job to be brutal and tell you what's what, that, based on what I think about it. Have I stopped handing you my work? No, you have not. Well, there you go. So, um, no, I'm not going to pull any punches. If I think it's bad, I'm going to say, no, do this better. (laughs) That's a quote. So, um, yeah, I don't know. uh, And I'm... I would feel terrible if I bleeped over something that I didn't want to yell at you about in your work. And then the world yelled at you about it. Sure. You know what I mean? Yes. I'd be like, well, you failed as a helper, Dave White. For letting that through. For letting that through. And so, no, I gotta, I gotta lay it down. Even down to the point of, you know, uh, gift giving. Like if you ask me for a thing and I and I get there's you a, a there's there's a gift giving subplot. subplot in this film about I hate everything you give me. If if you ask me for a thing and I give you the thing and then I think oh well he likes this author or this artist or this whatever he loves owls. Exactly. I'm just gonna bring him more, more owls, owls things exactly. over get, and over again. I will get you other stuff until you finally go okay. 
I have enough of, of that, that, whatever thing. it is. Yeah. And then I know, okay, well, I can stop and I'll move on to something else. So yeah, the, the, this is an open house. This is uh, this is a, this is a house of, of people telling each other the, the truth about this kind of thing. <laughs> we have other failings, I assure you. Oh, I could list them. <laughs> I could have an entire podcast where I just talk about my own failings. And it would last for years. Oh, let's not. Each do that. episode would be here's how I screwed that up. Oh, let's not. Here's how I disappointed that person. <laughs> here's how I was cruel. Here's how I was stupid. Like, why don't you save that for when you have insomnia? <laughs> that's going to be the name of the show, too. Here's how I was stupid. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I would record it at 3 a.m. Of course. When I wake up and can't get back to sleep thinking about all the ways in which I've been stupid. Oh, stop. That's true. And everyone's the same way. It's true. Everyone in the world, same way. And if you're not, you're just not thinking about yourself very much. <laughs> uh, showing up. Showing up. Okay, so. You Hurt My Feelings is about a writer. Yes. Showing up, the new film from Kelly Reichardt. Uh, is about an artist played by Michelle Williams. And she is a sculptor, and she is working on getting her work together for an opening. And she has about a week before her opening. And she's not ready. And she's kind of freaking out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And on top of all of that, there are lots of distractions in her life, none of which she has asked for. But some of which she is taking on voluntarily because she's overly responsible for stuff. Right. So, uh, it's a very uh, quiet movie. It's even, you know, you joked about how you don't need earplugs for a Nicole Holofcener film. You need an ear horn for, for, for Kelly Reichardt. You might need a hearing aid for uh, uh, Kelly Reichardt's because they are... They are as quiet as like a, a Hu Xiaoxian film. They are, they are, they have sound design, you know. But yeah. things, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a low key experience watching a Kelly Reichardt film. Dialogue is not the most important thing in a Kelly Reichardt film. So again, it's very, very quiet, very small in its approach. Uh, it is comic, which but is it, unusual for her. It's also very real about the internal strife of an artist. Uh, now, her her uh, the character Michelle Williams's character lives in Portland. Uh, her landlord and friend is also an artist and played by Hong Chow. And Hong Chow's character is a more successful local artist like she's working on a show that she's she's got two getting ready right? to do and she's got a second one that she's also been uh she's also doing that's sort of like an invitation mm -hmm. from a from the from the local art school so it's kind of like an honor right yeah. the art school where uh where, michelle williams character works as yeah, a secretary right so you get the sense that hong chow's character is free to work on her her work because money is not a problem for her. Like she owns the building and she, I want to say that they, she says she owns a different building. 
That rings a bell. Was in the, the in the city too. Seen like, seen it, so like, she's making income and is free to work on her art. Right. Michelle Williams has a full time job. Yeah. And has to work on her art. Meanwhile, the shower is broken, <laughs> and Hong Chow just is real lackadaisical about getting it fixed. So Michelle Williams just can't take a hot shower. Um, the the next thing that happens is a wounded bird shows up, and I'll get to that in a minute uh, because well, it's, it's Portland. They got to put a bird on it. <laughs> okay, the wounded bird shows up. I'll, as I said, I'll get to that in a minute. Um. And Michelle Williams' family is in the picture, too. Her mother works at the school. Her mother's divorced. And her father is also an artist who is either... He was either not as successful in his life as he could have been, or else he just still has a lot of his own work left over. Like, it's just all in his house. Yeah. Um, she has a brother, right. uh, played by John Magaro, who is... Uh, experiencing a mental health uh, issue. Not quite exactly sure what it is, but he's got troubles. Yeah. All right, so. And there's a deadline. And there's a deadline. So, um, as I said, Hong Chao is the, is, the, is the star of the local like art scene. She's more social. Uh, and her work, actually, when you see her work, it's kind of more reflective of her larger presence in the world. It's big mixed media stuff. Like the kind of thing that you walk into a gallery and you're like, wow, Whoa, like look at that. You it's know, brash. Like, yeah. That might not be the word I would use to describe it, but it is certainly more outgoing. Yeah. Michelle Williams, her work is small, these very intimate sculptures of women. It's very personal and it's, you know, kind of reflective of her own quieter self. I will say this as an aside. In real life, it is a mistake to equate artwork with its creator's personality. There's also so much, too much in the world of the idea that art is self-expression, that lore is a myth. So we don't do that here. (laughs) But for the purpose of this film, it is, I think, notable uh, that the work of these characters kind of mirrors who they are in the story. Mm-hmm. So, okay, here's the wounded bird. First of all, it's a puppet, which blew my mind at the end because it looks very realistic. real. Yeah. It is, a, a, is that bird real? Is it animatronic? Is it digital? What is going on with that bird? It's a puppet. Stay for the credits. Always stay for the credits. You'll <laughs> learn things. Um, so the bird becomes this 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 invitation for the film to watch how these two people respond to pressures and how much they are willing to give of themselves. So with Michelle Williams's character, her family complications and the parents and the brother, the bird sort of becomes another thing that she feels like she has to help She's with. taken on. Yeah. But the only reason she takes it on is because Hong Chao brings it to her and says, "Here. <laughs> take care of this wounded bird." I'll help too, maybe. Dumps it on her. Dumps it on her. Yeah. And Michelle Williams is like, I don't have time. I can't uh, fix my shower. I have have an opening too. And no one ever yells at each other about it. Um, the, 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 The world of this film 
is the world of an art school. And it is presented in such a refreshing way without mockery yes. or condescension, no attempts at satire. Anything that's humorous is there because it's kind of funny. Yeah. People, human behavior is funny and artists can be funny in the way that they approach their art. That's true. But no one is, no one's skewering anything. Right. Right. Um, sort of as opposed to basically every other movie about <laughs> the art world. Whether it is whether it is like big blue chip big name galleries sure. or regional scenes like in the movie Paint, which is a oh, yes. a mean spirited film yeah. about regional artists or or movies about performance artists. Yeah. help us. Anyway, I, go on. What I, you I will say, say I have just a quick interjection. Yeah. For years, the go to joke, like back to the fifties and sixties, when when yeah. like the, the the modernist era began and non representational art started. Yes. Coming in, yes. the ongoing joke was, "How do you know you've hung it right side up?" And yes. the person's saying, "Well, uh, mm-hmm. like there's the joke about is it hanging upside down?" Always the go-to gag, and I, I kind of roll yes. my eyes at it. We recently encountered a conversation with someone framing art. It wasn't an encounter; it was our encounter. Oh, well, okay. we were having the conversation yes. with the art framer. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That involved the notion of the framer not being entirely sure what the top was until what what direction the the work went without consulting with the artist. I was like, oh my god, it's true. <laughs> this is a real thing. Well, they didn't know, but I knew going in. Like mm-hmm. I knew, and I I just assumed that the gallery well, the, or the artist paints, would let them paints know. their name up uh, does their name upside down at the top. Like that's just messing. <laughs> Basically, yeah, what I'm yeah, so art, what? art has it coming, is what I'm saying. Uh, it, <laughs> here's the thing: it doesn't have it, it doesn't have it coming as much as Nestle, and no one's making a movie about that. No, you're right. right? It, it is it and is so, it is such a low hanging yeah. fruit that movies go after, like oh, artists are so full of themselves, and my kid could yeah. do that, and blah 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 blah. Yeah, uh, I love this movie. Mm. I love this movie. It is. Uh, it is a it is a film that takes seriously the problems of the people in the film. Yes, and you get to see artists making art in a way that again doesn't make shortcuts, doesn't doesn't uh, go oh ha ha like in a way that you hurt my feelings doesn't you hurt my feelings doesn't show you what kind of a writer she is uh or if she's good at it or not other than the the opinions of Eric. now i'm not criticizing you hurt my feelings for that it's not a film about that it is a film about the 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 exterior stuff of people having opinions about things yeah it's about the response yeah. to results not about so the process it 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 is it is a film these are two films about artists where one is showing you the work being created and the other is not because they have two different agendas exactly these films so um but i just that just popped into my head Anyway, um, which would you say is a more realistic film about a visual artist struggling with a deadline? Would it be Michelle Williams in Showing Up? Yes. Or Priyanka Chopra Jonas in Love Again? (laughs) (laughs) 
She's got less than a week to make that she tour poster for Celine she Dion, and she does a, not seem real perturbed about it at all. She ain't doing a damn thing, and neither is what's his face, the writer. Yes, you you, you have a you have an article deadline. Yeah. You're not doing anything no. either. Yeah. Um, sweet inclusion uh, of a painting in this film in one particular shot that I clocked immediately uh-huh. because it is by two artists whose work we actually own. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, the artists, uh, Chris Johansson and Joanna Jackson, who both of whom I admire very much. And who and are who, married to each other. And who are married to each other. Uh, we, we own paintings by both of them um, uh, that we got a long, long time ago. Uh, but occasionally they work collaboratively. Occasionally they, they work on the same piece together. Mm. And so the piece that's hanging on the wall of, of Michelle Williams's mother's office is one of their pieces. Um, and I was like, I know that. That's I. <laughs> you became the Leonardo DiCaprio meme from uh, <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Pointing at the screen. I know that one. Um, the, uh, and I don't mention that to be cool. What I, what I, what I, admire about this film is the commitment to real world work and it fits in here uh and i just love the work of these two artists who show up on a wall in a scene you know and they're like thanked in the credits um and it it, in a way it's that whole like this movie's for me you know that (laughs) it was that i guess on on one level and it makes sense that this character would have that piece of art. It's not like, oh, we could get this. Yeah, or, it's not just know. shoehorned in. This is, I mean, because they either live or have lived in Portland mm. themselves yeah. uh, at various points in their career, their marriage. Uh, another thing, I love the ending of this movie. Mm. It is Agreed. so, it's just so full and resolved and 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 giving and generous and... It it takes place at the opening, yeah, and it just feels so wonderful. I'm a I'm a Kelly Reichardt super fan. I think yeah, at this no, point sure. in my film going life, and this is just one of my favorite movies of the year. Yeah, uh, it may already be out of theaters, but definitely coming uh, to streaming and sure home video, VHS, <laughs> very soon. Beta, beta, beta. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 really lovely, and I I don't consistently adore Reichardt the way you do, but for the most part, I think she's really great, and this is certainly one of my favorites. I think from her, and it feels different in that it's, you know, I think when I think of the other some of her other endings, how they just leave me feeling so completely devastated, and this one is more uplifting and more, you know, hopeful in that way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's great. Oh, uh, look for it. If Check you it live in Los Angeles, it is actually still playing at the Lumiere. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, good, good to know. Yeah. Uh, most of you don't live in Los Angeles. Yeah, alas. So look for it in your local uh, art house. Indeed. Uh, is that it? That's it. Oh, golly. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, um, y'all, we'll be back soon with more. Until then, you can check out my other podcasts, including uh, Breakfast All Day with Christy Lemire. We're on YouTube and uh, your favorite podcatcher, uh, Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network. And uh, Deck the Hallmark, which I pop in once a week at least for. And uh, that's also available as a podcast, or you can watch it uh, on video if you are a subscriber to Philo. 
Um, you uh, can, of course, uh, again, like like we did this episode, if you leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, we'll read it on the air. You can subscribe there for free. Um, we're on just about all the big podcatchers, including um, you know Spotify and Google Play and iHeartRadio and Amazon Music, uh, thelounge.com, Spotify. Uh, I said Spotify. You said Spotify. Uh, uh, that other one, you know, you know that uh, uh, you know, that one. Anyway, uh, you can drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail Follow us at linoleumcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you, Blue, as always, for our dynamite theme music. You're the best, and you can follow his stuff at blue b l e u dot bandcamp dot com. Um, Alrighty then. Thanks for joining us, and uh, pick up Guinevere Turner's new memoir, "When the World Didn't End." Wherever you buy books. Uh, get the audiobook. She is an actual actress. I'm sure she has a bang up job <laughs> reading it. When I'm ready for it, I will. Uh, I will. I will go through the book again with her voice in my ear. Uh, anyway, yeah. and thank thanks to her for for coming on the show. Uh, until we meet again. Goodbye. <laughs>